You're about to join Niels Kostrup Larsen on a raw and honest journey into the world of systematic investing and learn about the most dependable and consistent yet often overlooked investment strategy. Welcome to the Systematic Investor Series. Welcome and welcome back to this week's edition of the Systematic Investor Series with Richard Brennan and I, Niels Kastel-Larsen, where each week we take the pulse of the global market through the lens of a rules-based investor. If you're new to the show, I hope that today's episode will trigger your curiosity enough to check out the back catalogue and listen to the past episodes you may have missed, like my conversation with Alan last week, where we discussed the return dispersion among trend followers in August, why all you need is trend following, as Quantica recently concluded, and of course, some of the key new items, uh, or news items is what I meant to say, from Jackson Hole. Also, I would encourage you to listen to the midweek episode where Alan spoke to Cameron Dawson, the CIO at New Edge Wealth, and where the um, they covered the uh, earnings situations as it looks like uh, today, the tightening of liquidity that the Fed is doing, and why bubbles are the best source of returns, that is, if you get out in time. So head over and check it out after you've done listening to Rich and I today. Rich, as always, fantastic to be back with you this week. How are you doing? How are things down under? It's a pretty sad time for us down here in the Commonwealth nation of Australia. Uh, we've lost our queen, so uh, uh, it's been a pretty miserable day for me uh, over the last 24 hours. Uh, you know, a lot of us over here, we've got very favor- favourable sort of memories of um, and fond memories of the queen. She certainly made it over here uh, many, many times. And um, yeah, I'm, I'm particularly attached to the monarchy, so I, I'm a bit upset at the moment. But uh, apart from that, Niels, trends are going well. Um, so there's always that to lift my spirits. Absolutely. And of course, um, it is a big loss for the UK. And in fact, I'm heading over to the UK in a couple of days. So um, I will be experiencing the somber mood, uh, without a doubt, uh, in London, um, but also have a chance to remember the Queen a little bit closer. Um, now, let's dive into... Um, you know, actually another somber note, frankly, um, because before we get into this uh, week's um, sort of what happened, I did notice a conversation um, that came out, I think about 10 days ago, with the historian Niall Ferguson, uh, who warned, warned that the world is sleepwalking into an area of political and economic upheaval akin to the 1970s, but he says it's only, gonna, it's only worse. Um, and so I found a snippet of what he said uh, on CNBC, and so I'm quoting now. He said, I said, having listened to Professor uh, Stiglitz uh, say that there was no inflation, that we would actually be worried, and that there was a risk of a 1970s scenario. And I said, if there was a war, and remember, this is a year ago, that's when you get inflation expectations really take off. Well, we got the war in Ukraine, and we also have the risk of instability elsewhere, not least Taiwan, between the US and China. So the ingredients of the 1970s are already in place. The monetary and fiscal policy mistakes of last year, which sets the inflation off, are very like the mistakes of the 1960s. And then, as in 1973, you get a war, except this war is lasting much longer than in 1973, and the energy shock that is that it's causing is actually going to be more sustained. So the question that I'm asking, are we sure it's not going to be worse than that? I mean, most people, when you have this conversation, kind of assume it can't be that bad, and they can't really envision double-digit inflation in the U.S., But we already have that within the UK, and the numbers of countries with double-digit inflation in the world is already north of 40, and it will soon be a higher number um, than that. And so I ask myself, why shouldn't it be as bad in the 1970s? Why shouldn't it actually be worse? I don't know if you have any thoughts on that before I do my normal market rap, well, but uh, I thought that was I, I a do, particularly I somber note. It is, but I, I think we can't lose sight of the fact that often, you know, we talk about things in economic terms, but as we all know on this planet, there's 
uh, there's a link between the economic, the environmental, and particularly the social fabric of this world. Now, I'm particularly worried about the decohesion of the social fabric. Um, you know, I, I think that the symptoms we are seeing, it, you know, because we are in this complex adaptive system, uh, the things we see at the economic level, they flow through into all of these different legs of stability in the global economy and, the, and our globe. And so I do worry about our ability to uh, retain a level of so social cohesion. I think post-war, post-1945, um, up to, um, you know, 2000, I think we did have a, a, a blossoming period where everybody was doing well generally. Um, there was rising inequality, but generally um, there was this um, everyone working together cohesively as a whole. Uh, there was less, I think, um, social uh, unrest, but I personally think that now the situation is ripe for social unrest to, to really sort of rear its ugly head. I think we're seeing this symptomatically with Ukraine and Russia. I think we're seeing this with Brexit. I think we're seeing this with the, the, the fractionalisation of the US uh, people um, into those that support Republicans, those that support Democrats, the Trump etc. Um, Biden sort of rift. Um, so I do see this level of unrest building and I think this is symptomatic of all of the factors that come to play in, in making people either feel safe and secure or whether it makes people feel uncertain. And I think we are in an environment of uncertainty and I'd be really watching for this this blossoming of social unrest, which I think is is the next thing to basically cause a lot of mischief in in keeping this world cohesive and united. Yeah, no, absolutely. All right, well, before we get to the trend following part, let me just quickly uh, update everyone on what um, kind of the key uh, points, what happened this week. And of course, uh, as, as it has been for a while now, it's pretty US uh, interest rate uh, focused. Um, but um, I think with regards to the Fed's action on overnight rates, analysts have been waiting to see how consumers reacted to the July rate hike as the summer progressed. And many expected that high gas prices along with the broad-based inflation would slow consumer demand enough that the Fed would at the very least moderate further rate hikes, possibly even pause for a meeting or two. But instead, the Fed via the Wall Street Journal communicated this week that another 75 basis points hike is likely when it meets in uh, on September 21st. The various members of the Open Market Committee have all aligned as hawkish and have left open the possibility of another 75 basis points at the November meeting. That would push the overnight corridor to about three and a quarters to 4% by November 2nd. And in previous communications, the Fed suggested that the target rate was three and a half to four. So that would be on the somewhat restrictive side. Now, stock investors didn't seem to mind and to be too concerned about this uh, as the sentiment brightened a bit and the S&P uh, this week uh, snapped a three-week losing streak to finish up 2.84% so far for the month. And also in terms of volatility, we actually saw the VIX heading back towards the 20 area. So a little bit of action there. But as usual, Rich, uh, let me just turn to you again and just hear what what from the uh, world of markets, economics, trend following, whatever you choose um, that you've been focusing on since we last spoke about a month ago. Uh, I hope the battleship is doing super well. Maybe it's even a speedboat at this time. Who knows? Um, but uh, how are things looking from your side? Look, it's, um, uh, uh, you know, July, of course, was a hiccup month for me. Uh, but um, uh, we had a big resurgence in, in August and um, so I'm, I'm back at my high watermarks now. This, this particular month, even though we've only had about 10 days of it, um, has been particularly strong for me. I think what, what's really sort of um, saving my portfolio is this exposure to um, Japanese yen. Um, we're getting the, these trends that we've had that really started in, in the 20s, um, you know, they're spectacular trends, and I certainly can't see any signs of it cooling down. Um, so USD, JPY, um, the, the Swiss-Yen relationship, they're very powerful contributors to my portfolio. So, um, you know, in in last month, um, 
uh, I particularly had a, a bit of a decline in my energies, you know, um, spot Brent, spot crude. Um, I took a bit of a bath there, but um, the powerful performance of the, the yen pairs certainly made up for that, um, you know, um, that impact of the energy exposure, uh, you know, more than uh, what I lost on those. So the portfolio is doing very well, but it, <clears throat> it's a very unusual environment. I'm certainly not not suggesting that this this we can expect this forever, but um, it's a fantastic environment for trend following. Um, yeah, I, I, I just. At the moment, I, I think that all the conditions are ripe for this to continue, but um, let's see what happens. Absolutely. Um, certainly from a, a trend following um, you know, point of view, currencies have been a really interesting uh, sector lately. Um, but of course, uh, for this week, like uh, a few of the recent weeks, it's really been fixed income that has uh, been the dominating factor. Um, bonds and, and shorter term interest rates uh, have been... Uh, well, bonds have been heading down, short-term interest rates have been heading up in terms of yield, and I think a lot of trend followers uh, still benefit from that. Other sectors that I just looked at quickly, uh, I don't think there's too much action going on, except, as you say, in some of the uh, individual currencies, um, and maybe even, I think maybe Coco. There was one of these soft markets that I noticed actually looked like it had a good week from a trend-following perspective, so... Uh, Anyways, not much really to uh, to talk about on that. Um, but as you alluded to, it's it is a positive start to September. Uh, this is numbers as of Thursday. I do think yesterday potentially could have been uh, a little bit of a losing, uh, or at least a mixed day for for CTAs. But beta fifty index is up sixty one basis points for September, up fifteen point four for the year. Sokjen CT index up forty basis points, up twenty one point three quarters um, for the year. Sokjen trend up seventy basis points, up twenty nine point oh eight for the year, and the short term traders index up forty five basis points, up eleven and a half or so. Um, for the year, while we see that the MSCI, MSCI World Index um, is also enjoying a good month, up 2.12%, but still down almost 17% for the year. And the World Government Bond Index, it just continues to drop in price. Uh, last week, we could confirm that, at least in the US, we had the first official bear market in bonds for a few decades at least. And the World Government Bond Index is also down so far this month, about 96 basis points when I looked at it. All right, let's dive into some of the... Uh, we have one question before we dive into the topics, which are super interesting uh, topics today, I have to say. Um, so thanks so much, Rich, for preparing all of that. Um, but the question um, that I want to uh, pose from you is, is from Irving. And Irving uh, writes, Hello, Nils. Your podcast, particularly the episodes with Jerry and Rich, motivated me to develop my version of the Turtle system. I very much value the knowledge you provide week after week. Well, that's very kind of you to say, Irving. Anyways, during backtesting, two questions popped up. First, the use of ATR, so average true range, for position sizing is straightforward. But ATR of what period? The same as the trend, question mark. Second, is it the same trend length for entering and exiting, question mark? Or is the exit length somewhat lesser than the entry? Appreciate uh, your comments about this. Thanks in advance. Take care of yourself. So um, now, of course, um, Rich, I know you are very transparent, um, but of course, um, we, we don't expect you to uh, reveal the secret source of how, how you do things. So if you can talk to Irving about these questions with that in mind, feel free. Yes, so it was a good question from Irving. And uh, look, I firstly want to congratulate him for having a crack at the turtle trading method. Um, a lot of people um, say that the turtle trading method doesn't work anymore, but really they're taking a literalist interpretation about the specific variables that were used uh, for the turtle trading system. But, you know, um, given that markets are these adaptive um, things, um, the variables do change, but the, the system itself is still very valid, no, particularly these simple trend-following systems like the turtle traders method, um, when when you've only got a, a few parameters such as the entry condition, um, the initial stop and the trailing stop, when it's a very simple trend-following system, you tend to find that these things are universally applicable across markets and they're very sort of um, robust because of the limited number of parameters. 
Uh, but what you do need to recognise is that the variables you use for those parameters do need to alter over the course of time. So whilst people say that the turtle's trading method doesn't work, well, um, you know, literally, if you used exactly the same variables um, that the turtles did back in those um, in the 80s, um, you would find that. But um, you can certainly use the turtle's trading system with variables that adapt over the course of time with the nature of, um, you know, how the market changes. Um, to have these robust models that are very enduring in nature, which is different to, you know, more complex um, models that are developed with many parameters um, that are specifically configured to respond to a particular market condition. They're not universally applicable. They're fit to a particular market condition. And what you find with those complex models is that when that condition changes, you can't just change the variables you need to drop the entire system and develop a new system um, so where our simple trend following models um, work well is that they are universally applicable they are very enduring we don't need to drop those systems but we do need to adjust the variables from time to time based on how the market evolves so Congrats to um, Irving for um, having a crack at the turtles trading method. In relation to his questions on ATR, um, look, a lot of trend followers do things differently, so I'll just explain how I do it. Um, so I use um, an ATR with a 25-day look back. Um, that therefore means that I'm looking at, at volatility over the last 25 days using fairly recent data. I then also apply a multiplier to this ATR. So over a 25-day period, I have an average true range of X, and then I will apply a multiplier to that two times, three times, four times, or whatever. And the use of the ATR and the multiplier is used to define my initial stops and trailing stops and also for my position sizing. So... Um, as, as you know, I, I'm not, um, I don't um, practice the principles of dynamic position sizing. So um, on entry into a, a particular trend for a particular system, um, I'm using my ATR and my multiple to define the initial stop for my initial bet allocation. That bet allocation in terms of position size stays constant from entry right through to exit, but at the point of entry is when the calculation is performed so that I apply an equal risk bet um, based on my realised capital. So what I'm saying at that point of time of entry into a trend before I actually uh, participate in the trend, just when the signal arises and I'm just about to enter that trend, I do have known information that I can rely on. I can know I know how much my realised capital is at that particular time. In other words, the trading level based on all closed trades at that particular point in time. I know the volatility um, up at that particular point in time and that is sufficient information to allow me to um, assign a standard dollar risk bet um, based on my um, realized trading capital. So at that point um, when I use my ATR and my ATR multiple I define a stop position. That therefore gives me that that stop position effectively is my Amount of risk on realised trading capital I'm prepared to take for that trade. In other words, let's say I have a $1,000 risk bet based on a, 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 a realised trading capital of, of a, you know, a, say, $100,000. Um, therefore, I might be assigning, um, I think it's 1% at that particular level, $1,000. Let, let's say it's $500. Uh, that therefore says on my realised um, trading capital of, of $100,000, I'm prepared to bet $500, full stop. I therefore define where my initial stop is using ATR and ATR multiple, and that therefore says on between the distance of entry and to that position of the initial stop, I only want to risk a maximum of $500 on my realised capital. Then the trailing stop takes over from that point of time until um, exit. Now, I'm using the same ATR multiple of 25, uh, ATR period of 25 days, and I'm using the same multiple for my trailing stop as my initial stop. But every time the price moves favorably um, in accordance with the direction I'm taking on that trend, the trailing um, stop lifts up or ratchets up um, using um, recent volatility. So it will expand and contract with different levels of volatility. But what you'll find is that it never goes backwards. So um, uh, I find that 
on my initial bet of $500. That is a maximum adverse exposure I'm prepared to take on my realized capital. And then when the 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 trade takes off from entry to exit. As soon as it moves favorably, I get a favorable move in my trailing stop. If it goes unfavorable, the trailing stop locks in place. It's what you call a chandelier exit. So it doesn't sort of um, lower. In other words, I'm not giving back. Um, my trailing stop always locks in place if there's an adverse price move. But when there's a beneficial price move, it always moves in that direction. So what that means is that over the course of time, um, I can find that price moves significantly away from where my trailing stop level is. If there's a very fast, positive, beneficial trend movement, price can um, accelerate away from my trailing condition. Now, what that means is that I'm not risking there my unrealized, I'm, I'm not risking there my realized trading capital, as that was already assigned on entry, but I am risking significant amounts of what I call unrealized equity. Now, because I'm in the camp that says I allow profits to run, I believe that this is is an okay risk bet for me to take. I'm not risking my, my trading capital that I'm preserving at all possible costs. That's, that's what I want to preserve. But I am um, risking my profits. In other words, if I do build up a level of unrealized equity or significant profit there, I'm prepared to risk that for significantly greater profits in the future because I don't know what the future is going to hold. So that's the thing about as soon as you enter a trend, you don't know how long that's going to last. So when you say, um, do you use an ATR based on the size of the trend length? Well, you know, um, we don't know how long that trend is going to be. So, um, you know, when you enter a trend, uh, you need to use a 25, uh, something like a 20 or a 25 period ATR to look at the, the recent volatility, because that means that as volatility increases, um, your trailing stop gives you more room to breathe. Now, um, I'm using volatility um, basically as a basis to allow my trailing stops to give room to breathe. I'm not using um, my ATR as a basis to define uh, dynamic position sizing between the entry and the exit. So uh, what I'm, I'm saying is that when you use dynamic position sizing, you are changing the allocation of your position between entry to exit in terms of its position size. So really what you're doing there is applying a, a, a degree of leverage, um, either increased leverage or lower leverage, to massage the position size in accordance with the volatility. That's different to what I do. I'm using ATR of my volatility measure simply as a means to um, define breathing room for my trends to move. Move. I'm not changing my position size. So I'm keeping my, my position size constant, but I am giving more room to breathe. And this is sort of um, um, consistent with my philosophy of allow profits to run, give maximum freedom for profits to run. If you are risking profit, don't worry, risk that profit to achieve far greater profits. But if you are risking um, trading capital, be very careful with um, risking that that level. So that that's my preference, Niels. Does that explain things from my perspective? Yeah, but you've opened up the kimono a little bit, so I have a couple of follow-up questions, actually. Um, so if I understand you correctly, let's just say we take a simple example. Let's just take the dollar index, right? And let's just say you get a long position at 109 and you do your calculations of ATR, let's just say whatever the volatility is on, on, on that day. Um, and let's just say, so you set your stop uh, accordingly, uh, accordingly. But let's just say the market then moves up in uh, in your favor. It goes from 110 to 115. I imagine then, and let's just, for argument's sake, say the volatility is unchanged. So I imagine your stop would move up having the same distance, but this just time just from... 115. So essentially it moves higher only with the price move. But my question becomes, what if the price then stays at 115 and volatility drops? And let's just say volatility halves. I'm interpreting what you said is that you would then move up your stop to about half, all things being equal, to about half the distance from the 115 where the price now is kind of stuck. Is that correctly interpreted? Yes. So um, because I'm using a 25 period ATR on my trailing stop, 
um, what you do find is, let's say that volatility, um, well, volatility, let's say, decreases. So, but let's say that price has moved in my favor. Um, if price has moved in my favor and volatility decreases, yes, my trailing stop will ratchet up in relation to that reduced volatility it's now experiencing because it's using a 25 period look back. If, um, so yes, that, that, that. Okay. So let me just continue my thought experiment here. So let's just say again, take a simple example. You get in at 110 and let's just say the stop was at 90. Price now moves to 115. Uh, volatility drops by half. So instead of, and this is, you know, simple math here. Um, so instead of 20 big points between your entry, uh, your entry and your stop, we should now only have 10 big points. So it moves up to 105. So 10 below uh, 115. Now, from what you said, as far as I could understand, is that even if vol increases again, you're not going to move your stop down from 105 now because it's locked in. Okay. And you're nodding. People can't see this. You're nodding. So here is my point because you and Jerry, of course, have been very vocal about the dynamic position sizing, right? And 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 and, and you just said before about leverage inside um, the um, dynamic position size systems. But in a sense... I would argue that you are changing to some extent the leverage because your loss is now, your potential loss is becoming smaller and you're not going to increase that, you just said. So in a roundabout way, I think you are, I wouldn't say dynamically position sizing, but you're dynamically changing your risk in that trade. Is that a yeah, fair yeah, assessment? Yeah, that's fair. But what, what we're not doing is incorporating additional trading costs. So No, no, I'm, uh, not, I'm, I'm so, not attacking yeah. you here. I'm just saying... So, no, that, I agree. That, um, yeah. Leverage does change. You know, yeah. Theoretically, to uh, uh, stop, um, when you're looking at the distance from the entry to the stop, yes, that does change. Um, yeah. With reduced volatility, it gets closer, if, it, if provided price is moving in your favour. Um, of course, all bets are up. As soon as price moves again, against us um, between entry and exit uh, because I'm using – I know Jerry doesn't use a chandelier exit me mechanism. He's made that right, explicit. Right. I do. So what I'm doing is if price is adverse along ex excursion between entry to exit, I, I'm not um, adjusting my trailing stop whatsoever. The only time yeah. I'm doing this is in a beneficial price movement. So what sure. it's doing is it's continuously massaging things because in reality, I don't want to leave too much profit on the table when the trends decide to turn. I think I'm more aggressive than Jerry is with my chandelier exit in um, locking in more of that unrealized profit through the use of the trail. I'm not quite as um, freewheeling as, say, Jerry is um, because I've, I've got much lower capital than Jerry. And I think um, the difference in levels of trading capital really does change the philosophy in a lot of aspects, but that's getting onto another topic. Yeah, uh, yeah. Yeah, so no, yeah, I agree with you, Neil. So, it's yeah. very interesting because because we've always talked about, and this is actually, I only bring this up because this is the first time I'm actually really appreciating the difference because I've, I kind of thought, because you both talk about, oh, it's great to have loose pants, but your pants are not as loose as Jerry's, it seems, not at all times at least. So I'm, I'm now starting to appreciate the difference. If you look at Jerry's, he's... I'm using an ATR-based trailing stop. I think Jerry is using a Donkian-based exit. Um, so if you look at the way a Donkian channel works, you, you tend to find that it does work like a chandelier exit um, in a lot of um, right. aspects. True. But True. there are certain things. ATR is a bit more um, responsive to volatility than a Donkian channel with a longer look yeah. back. So this is where Jerry and I will sort of have slightly different opinions here. Now, it's not that we disagree. It's just that we're using different systems. So, sure. No, no, um, of course. Yeah. And this is not about that. It was just... A very subtle when you explained it, I thought, well, hang on, there's actually a subtle difference here that I just want to make sure I fully understand. And so I appreciate um I, I appreciate you explaining that. Um and you know, which I think makes makes sense. 
Um, so um, actually, cool. I was just so I, thinking, Neil, just just quickly on that. Um, look, another thing that I think that I probably do uh, differ with Jerry a fair bit um, is I, for instance. I know people say, I, I certainly say I don't use the dynamic position sizing, but what I'm saying there is that I'm not using dynamic position sizing for a, a single return stream, but I do use an ensemble of systems. But each of my individual systems in my ensemble has a fixed respect at entry. Now, the reason for that is because I'm of the opinion that um, because I'm targeting these tail regions where I think the information is deficient to be able to at least get sufficient um, information from that tail region to make an assessment of how to adjust position sizing, so I don't do it. So therefore, but I am applying an ensemble of systems at the point of entry uh, with all different um, unique sort of um, um, configurations to capture different aspects of trends. So, uh, you know, that's where um, a person might say, well, Richard, you might not apply, apply dynamic position sizing, but aren't you really doing that because you're using an ensemble of systems? Um, you know, you might use six to eight systems. They'll be different at, at different points in time. They'll be turned on. And that therefore at a position sizing level will mean that on that particular market, you will be increasing your position size. And yes, that is valid. But um, there is nuance in what I'm saying here because um, I'm not looking at uh, assigning risk to a single trajectory. Uh, so what I mean is that the trends that can manifest in the tail region can be a variety of different forms. I'm therefore not prepared to invest a single bet, which is constrained by a particular system I used, or to, to over-invest in that particular trajectory. I'd prefer to spread my risk across an ensemble of six different configured systems to therefore diversify my risk across six different possible trend trajectories. So it's not um, what I would call over-investing or under-investing in a particular um, return stream and therefore at the portfolio level it keeps all of my risk constant um, because I'm applying the same risk bet across a diversified ensemble across a diversified market landscape you'll find that every re return stream in that portfolio is fairly equally weighted and it's not over investing uh, but when I say equally weighted it's equally weighted in respect to realized trading capital it's not equally rated in relation to equity because some of those return streams carry a lot of of profit in them um, and there is a considerable distance to their trailing stop. So in terms of equity, yes, I can find that my portfolio is overweight, but it's overweight in risking profit. It's not overweight in risking my trading capital. Does that make sense? Yeah, no, I mean, this is great. This is a, a, a super. Now, there is one little place where I would like to push back on your initial comment to Irving, and that is you kind of made it sound like that the traditional turtle-type philosophy and similar systems, which, by the way, I don't, you know, you and I had this discussion off-air that people often say that it's simple trend-following, but when we use the word simple, we don't mean easy or, uh, you know, in any negative uh, shape or form, but it, maybe we just can't come up with a better word. But then you said, but if you use more advanced or whatever, sophisticated types of trend following, you risk the fact that when markets evolve over time, you kind of need to ditch the whole system rather than just change your parameters. And I would push back on that because I actually think that there are many different types of trend following models that are maybe a little bit more sophisticated than one, one entry, one exit, and one stop, where you clearly don't need to ditch the system because it's the same approach, it's the same philosophy, um, it's the same core principles that we are applying and but then again for sure your parameters may be you know out of out of out of shape out of favor uh, and you need to recalibrate i mean this is one thing that we do uh, at done i mean we do have a dynamic process for selecting parameters um which i'm sure other firms uh, would have as well but it doesn't mean we're going to have to ditch any of our models just because the parameters change over time. Um, so I just wanted to make that clear that it's, you know, 
but I also, uh, but I do agree that if you overcomplicate your system with all sorts of things that we can't really call trend following, um, then you do run the risk that that model needs to be retired uh, at some point. Uh, yes, I, I look, I, I wasn't actually having a crack at any anyone in the trend following no, no, world, and and you know I know there's a lot of variation in in system um, in the trend following world. What this is saying is that it's a bit like um, you know. Um, the difference between a four-wheel drive and a Bugatti Veyron. Um, so, you know, I can drive a Bugatti Veyron at high speed on a very smooth freeway, and I can, uh, you know, but um, if you try taking that Bugatti Veyron off-road, you'll find that its performance is going to be significantly um, um worse uh, than what you got on that specific regime where it flourished. So that's what I'm talking about in relation to complexity. As you increase complexity, uh, you are making your system more responsive to a particular market condition and less robust to a variety of different market conditions, simply because of the complex foundation of your system um, is restricting its abilities to accept risk. So um, when I talk about simple systems, I'm actually not having a go at simplicity. I'm saying this is actually very beneficial in, in uncertainty exactly. uh, because um, I think people often equate simplicity with um, dumb. I actually equate simplicity in terms of the word parsimony uh, or Occam's razor. In other words, I believe that simple solutions often are the most universally applicable of solutions. And when you see the history of science and you see how um, we started off with these mathematical equations to define different theories, you find that um, as science progresses and you get more and more of these um, universal um, uh, uh, basically bringing together disparate areas of science into a cohesive whole, you find that the statements to express that science actually get simpler. They don't get more complex. Simplicity explains more than what complexity does. So in dealing with complex markets, which we all recognise are, are fiends to deal with, you actually um, you, you want simplicity because that is the, the most robust solution to deal with that level of complexity. And that's where I think a lot of people get it wrong in assuming that they should add more bells and whistles to their systems to um, target a particular aspect of, of a complex adaptive system. And yet we know that that system is going to change over time. It's non-stationary. Um, you really should be looking at robust solutions that are universally applicable, therefore simple systems, as opposed to ephemeral, fleeting, complex systems that might apply for a particular point in time and then no longer work. Because then what you find is you've got to what they call system hop. And, and system hopping is really problematic because that brings into um, the question of timing risk. Um, you know, if you have a, a model that suddenly no longer works and you develop a new model responding to uh, what now does work in that regime, um, you're battling a timing decision, um, especially with these models that have a, a very short time frame or, or endurance. Universal models that can be applied at all times, that, you know, they might offer, uh, you know, subpar performance during a lot of these times, but they don't die. Um, these more complex refined models are particularly honed for a particular condition. And where the risk builds up is that when that condition changes, these don't just underperform, they die. And this is where you get this risk of ruin arising. So that that's what we're talking about here. Yeah, no, absolutely. And um, I mean, my God, we've already uh, covered a lot of ground and, and we're still only with the first question here and uh, we need to get to the topics. But I do want to say just to really underscore um, when we say simplify um, and, and so on and so forth, I actually think that that is the hardest thing we do and probably also other people who build systems is actually taking a somewhat complex thesis and put that into simple simple rules or or simplify the 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 it into two rules so so no we hail simplicity as something extremely positive and valuable um because i agree with everything you said about the uh um 
the properties of simplicity and the robustness, so on and so forth. But we need to stop there because we've got a few really important topics to discuss today. And so the first one, and actually we've already touched on some of these items, so it's quite nice. It's going to fit into some of the things we're going to talk about um, now. But the first one is, you, you wrote a headline to me saying that, you know, we know that the 60-40 portfolio is languishing this year, um, but can we do better than that, right? So I want you to take the floor and talk about some of the things that um, that we believe strongly um, can help investors who are uh, stuck in the mindset that 60-40 is the way to go. Yes, Neil. So look, I, I don't want to regurgitate what you and um, Alan already spoke about last Saturday uh, with sure. um, uh, Quantica's paper, but um, I did really enjoy that Quantica's paper. It's Quantica's Quarterly Insights uh, for 30th of August 2022. And, and what their paper demonstrated was that um, the power of of trend following as a diversifier is quite phenomenal, really, when it all boils down to it. And there are three particular points that Quantica hammer home in their research piece. And the first is that over a sufficiently long time horizon, the addition of trend following improves the risk-adjusted returns of almost all forms of investment portfolio. Now, we need to take this carefully because this is a bold statement here because what this is saying is it's not just an equity portfolio that's going to improve. It's not just a bond portfolio that's going to improve. What Quantica are saying there is that it improves almost all forms of investment portfolio. And what they're saying is that the portfolio diversification benefits of trend following is independent to the underlying portfolio structure. So let, if we break this down, what does this mean? Well, we always know that trend following offers an uncorrelated um, um, opportunity for alternative portfolios. So let, let's examine that. When you look at what does a, a, a diversified systematic trend follower do, they diversify widely across asset classes globally and across systems so that inherently whatever um, they are adding to as far as an allocation into a portfolio, they will be uncorrelated to whatever they're adding to by virtue of the fact that they are so extensively diversified. So this is an amazing, very powerful property that gives value not just to equity portfolios, not just to bond portfolios, but to any portfolio that is particularly concentrated towards a single specific risk factor. So if we uh, you know, imagine um, uh, long GDP portfolios, what do we mean by that? Well, you know, um, whilst people might think that their portfolios are diversified, um, when they back back and they look at uh, is it really diversified, what they might find is that it is inherently um, exposed to what we call long GDP. So if I have a portfolio invested heavily in equities, a, long, a buy and hold portfolio, plus if I've got a portfolio invested heavily in property, what uh, we're talking here uh, real estate, what you find is that those two are very correlated to long GDP scenarios. In other words, when the global economies are booming, both are fairly highly correlated to that. And what you find when you look into the, the broad um, causal mechanics of any um, portfolio that is allocated towards a specific risk factor, you find that they are particularly concentrated. Now, so therefore, when you bring a diversified trend-following portfolio with all of its properties into that investment portfolio, you significantly decorrelate that relationship. So you uh, improve the risk-adjusted returns of that portfolio by virtue of you adding that effectively ensemble of, of diversification into your your fairly concentrated investment portfolio. So that's the first point of Quantica. Does that make sense, Niels? Yeah, makes perfect sense. Absolutely. And the, the, the next strong point they make is that um, this isn't just a, a long-term measure because they used a short-term rolling window, a five-year rolling window, and they found that um, trend-following diversification benefits are persistent over time, plus they have been strongest when needed. And what that means is that um, when these portfolios that are particularly concentrated towards a particular risk factor are underperforming, that's when you find that the 
uncorrelated nature of the trend-following component that's added into that portfolio actually adds this cushioning, this protective cushioning that um, dilutes the impact of that adversity um, of that concentrated portfolio. And the third uh, point they like to make is that um, the benefits offered by trend following is to a large extent resilient to degradation of trend following returns. And that's because they're saying that it is the uncorrelated diversification benefits of trend following that is providing the benefits. It's not really the actual underlying performance of that trend following model, which is augmenting the returns. However, um, what I did was I took up the challenge of Quantica and I did my own research because I, I, I totally agree with them on all, all three points except that third point where I thought, well, actually, you can find that trend following augments returns, improves the compound annual growth rate of the portfolio. This is something that um, in this statement that it is not, uh, you know, uh, we can have a degradation of trend following returns but still obtain these benefits. I don't think Quantique is actually saying that it doesn't improve returns. I'm just thinking they're saying that, look, you, you don't necessarily need enhanced returns for trend following to still obtain these benefits. So I'll, I'll give them the, the benefit of the doubt here. But I did my own research and I particularly looked at um, an equity portfolio. In particular, I, I, I looked at the traditional 60 equity, 40 bond portfolio and looked at, well, what, what component of trend um, could we replace with that bond? And also, is it a 60-40 relationship or is there an, a more optimal weighting when you incorporate trend following into your equity portfolio? And when I did this research, I, I noticed that, of course, everyone's fully aware that um, when you look at the period from 2000 through to 2000 and where we are now, 2022, there's effectively been five periods of equity correction. Um, so there was the 2000 to 2003 dot-com bubble, bubble burst. There was the 2008-2009 GFC. There was the, a, a short-term reversal in about October 2018, if we remember back to the trade war tariffs days, um, global economic slowdown worries and the, the Fed raising interest rates over that period. That, there was this short reversal in equities, if we remember back in October 2018, I certainly remember it. Um, and also in March 2020, we had quite a significant short-term reversal associated with COVID and, of course, where we are today post January 2022, we've got uh, effectively this inflation-related um, e equity impact um, where, where we're getting a significant deterioration in equity performance um, post-January 2022. So there are these five periods. And when you look at those five periods, you see that the bond, the, the traditional equity uh, bond relationship certainly held up in four of the five situations. They haven't held up in this most recent uh, inflation uh, event uh, in 2022. So what we actually find when we, we drill down into the chart, we actually see the bonds were negatively correlated to equities. They weren't uncorrelated to equities over those five events. So when we look at, well, how did trend perform with equities over those periods? You find that um, in all five periods that I've, um, I've already gone through, you find that in four of those periods, trend was actually um, negatively correlated with equities. And in one of those periods, which was the October 2018 trade tariff war, it was uncorrelated. It wasn't uh, negatively correlated and it wasn't positively correlated, but it has certainly held up better and it, it, it certainly has shown no signs of deterioration from um, 2000 up to the current day. So as, a, as an all-weather um, allocation into an equity portfolio, it's actually produced superior returns to what a 60, uh, the classic 60 equity 40 bond portfolio is done and when you you compare the metrics I'll just um, I'll just have to get up my screen here Niels I'll just compare the metrics and, and let you know uh, what the difference between the two were we're all waiting in excitement here, Rich, <laughs> yeah, for you yeah. to find it. <laughs> okay, so when you do, uh, compare 60% 60, 60 equities, 40% um, bonds against a 60% a equities, and in this case I'm using 40% of the SG trend index is just my proxy, 
for trend following. Um, I find that um, when you compare the relationship, you see that um, the compound annual growth rate over the period for the trend solution was 6.91% and for the um, equity bond solution was 5.91. So you actually see that uh, the trend allocation, 60-40 arrangement, actually produces a superior CAGR to what the 60-40 bond did. You also find, and this is the important one, whilst we've got not only a lift in our CAGR, when you look at the maximum drawdown, you see that the maximum drawdown of the trend equity solution is 28%. The maximum drawdown of the, uh, the bond equity solution is 32%. So we've got an improved um, maximum drawdown as well as an improved CAGR. Um, so from a risk-adjusted perspective, obviously the trend equity solution improves. So, uh, you know, all the ticks in the box from what Quantico was saying, totally agree with it. But then I thought, well, what is the optimal allocation for uh, the trend equity portfolio? And this is where I use the goal seek function. And um, I looked at uh, over the last 22 years, uh, what would be um, a suitable allocation to trend following for a, a portfolio concentrated in equities? And this is where in our discussions, we've talked about the benefits of trend following, and where I think allocators fall down is that they are not um, they are not applying a sufficient or a material enough allocation to trend following to get all of these benefits we're talking about. They will get a, get a degree of this benefit, but it's going to be a diluted benefit. So um, what I'm saying is that you need to offer a material allocation to trend following to really get these benefits. And what is the optimal allocation? Well, I'll tell you. The optimal allocation for from 2000 to 2022. Can I guess? Yeah, I was just going to say, it's, it must be the $64,000 question, right? Yeah. Well, we talked about the 60-40 portfolio. Well, it's a 40-60 portfolio. So exactly. the optimal allocation is 40% uh, equities, uh, like the S&P 500 total return index, um, and 60% uh, gen, uh, uh, um, SG trend index. So it flips the relationship around. But what that does uh, when you compare the results is that over the 22-year period, the compound annual growth rate for the 40-60 the portfolio using trend is 6.81%, um, so which is higher than the 5.91% of the 60-40 traditional portfolio. But where it really um, clicks in, the maximum drawdown for the 40-60 is 13% as opposed to 32% for the bond equity. Now, this is where you get this significant benefit, this reduced drawdown from the diversifying properties that we've been talking about of trend following. So I just thought that was interesting to go the next step from what Quantica were doing and apply it to equities and, and look at this and just test what Quantica is saying, tick the boxes and see what the optimal allocation was. Yeah, no, I appreciate that. Of course, you didn't quite get my hint because, of course, the actual percentage I think you sent to me was 64. That's why I said it must be the $64,000 question as far as, I, as far as I remember your notes. Yes, but anyways, it's, it, it is. It's 64% SG trend, 36% S&P. Exactly. I just thought I'd, yeah. I'd sort of round it to be yeah. the alternative for no. the uh, 60-40 portfolio. I like that. I like that a lot. Well, thanks for that. I mean, obviously, super interesting and, of course, as we mentioned uh, last week or the week before, uh, these type of papers and research papers are super useful because I think a lot of institutional investors will actually have a very hard time arguing against them. Of course, it follows all the other academic papers, uh, um, you know, over the last 30, 40 years that again confirms uh, that all portfolios need trend. But it's it's useful to have these updated once every five years. Of course, the conclusion is the same, but at least it brings it to the attention of, of investors. So, um, so definitely worth studying. Now, we've got three topics left. I don't know if we can get through all three. Let's try, but just be aware of that uh, when you dive into it. So do you want to dive into return stacking, a topic that we've actually talked about a little bit before, but maybe there's some nuances that you want to uh, you want to add to this? Yes. Yeah, so uh, this concept of return stacking you'll read about, um, particularly on Twitter. Uh, so what we've been talking about so far is highly related to this concept of return stacking. In fact, 
for a trend follower uh, when they're talking about bringing together ensembles of return streams together across asset classes, across systems, etc. They are looking at this principle of the benefits achieved through correlation offsets of bringing those ensembles together and how they all marry together as a consolidated portfolio, how they marry together in terms of what is the, 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 the compound wealth delivered by that portfolio with all of these beneficial correlation offsets embedded in them. Now, so the principle of return stacking is, is something that is applied by uh, people that typically are not 100% invested in trend following. It's typically involved by people that have uh, a material dollar exposure to some form of um, 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 equity portfolio, for example, and um, you know they might have a million dollar portfolio invested in equities. Uh, and that the concept behind return stacking is that you don't need to tie up one dollar to get $1 of exposure to any given asset. So futures, um, futures is a really good product. It's a margin product that lets you get exposure to an asset for 5% or less in margin, which leaves the rest of your capital free to invest elsewhere. So at its core, uh, return stacking is the combination of strategies. And what they do is they, they use the terms an alpha strategy and a beta strategy. So they're bringing together two strategies together. One that um, is uh, predominantly ties up the majority of your capital. And the other um, is a margin-based product that um, only utilizes a small level of capital, but gives you significant um, notional exposure with that, um, that investment. So for example, um, uh, one of the components, the alpha or the beta, is generally attained through cash-efficient derivatives. So uh, given that futures require only a small percent of capital versus the gross notional exposure, capital can therefore be used to create multiple exposures. And therefore, what we're doing here is we're applying leverage. Um, but more importantly, whilst we're applying leverage by um, uh, building on or already a, 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 a a high equity level applied to a portfolio plus notional exposure brought in through a leverage instrument. Whilst we're adding leverage into the portfolio, we're doing this in a manner that reduces risk. This is important. This is different to say someone who scales up their portfolio um, simply by increasing the position size or increasing the, the allocations in the portfolio. They're not necessarily doing it in a risk reducing manner. Return stacking is a principle that's using the benefits of correlation offset to improve um, the relationship um, in the most effective way um, to manage your, your finite capital. So the idea is that you're using um, excess money um, to diversify your portfolio and return uh, find returns elsewhere. So let's use an example. If I have a million dollars to invest and I get one million dollars in bonds, um, I can also add a million dollars in, say, the S&P 500 futures with about 5% margin um, to gain an additional $1 million exposure. And therefore, um, when I um, return stack these components of $1 million invested in bonds and $1 million invested in exposure in S&P, I'm getting $2 million worth of exposure. So it allows um, you to get this additional exposure to either... Um, amplify the return or you can um, um, use return stacking to um, earn the same return but reduce the, the risk in that portfolio. So a good example is, um, uh, just in this example, let's say we return stack the beef B-top 50 index with a traditional 60-40 portfolio. So when we look in isolation at the performance of the B-top 50, we see that it's got a, a compound annual growth rate of 7.35% and a traditional 60-40 portfolio uh, between 87 to 2022 has got a compound annual growth rate of 7.4%. When you return stack something, you're saying we can almost add the 7.4 to the 7.35% to get about 14.75%. It's not going to be exact because um, uh, when you um, 
when you basically add uh, two compound uh, return streams together, uh, there's not an exact um, a linear equivalence between the two. There is some correlation benefits, et cetera, that, that alter that relationship. But it's getting close to almost a double the return if you return track tactus the two on top of each other. So 100% invested in the BTOP50, 100% invested in a traditional 60-40 gives you 200% at almost double the return. But where the real benefit comes in is that the, um, the maximum drawdown of the ensemble of the return stacked uh, arrangement is far lower than what the individual max drawdowns of of each individual contribution. So this is where at a, at a gross portfolio level, you get the uh, risk-adjusted return benefits of using return stacking. So it's exactly the same principles, Niels, as we've been discussing in, in before, but it's just where People who are heavily invested uh, with their, their cash in a particular uh, you know, portfolio, they can gain the benefits of supplementing um, their portfolio returns with a return stacked um, component of, say, trend following or anything you can ob obtain the benefits of, of this margin exposure um, to get increased notional exposure with lower cash. That's all we're talking about with return stacking. You know, absolutely. But let me just, uh, because we've talked a lot about performance numbers, we've talked a lot about leverage, let me just be absolutely clear that past performance is not necessarily indicative of future returns. And you really do need to understand things like futures before you even dare to, um, you know, consider something like this. Um, because of course, will leverage can also come uh, higher risk. Uh, so I just want to make that absolutely clear. Uh, on this in this particular segment um, but it is interesting it's something that is in vogue of course um, and the whole I think the whole theme about how do we replace the 40 in a 60 40 portfolio I think that is uh, well we started talking about this a long time ago you and I uh, obviously have written about it uh, a long time ago uh, so we, we we know it's important and I think I certainly sense that more and more people are um, are slowly doing it, um, frankly, uh, not necessarily putting the money in trend following, but they're certainly lowering their exposure to fixed income um, because when we got to about zero, in, you know, zero in terms of interest rate levels, uh, I think most people could put the logic together and 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 realize that well, most likely we're going to be losing money on our bonds, which, by the way, you have done now. If you've had the world government bond index for the last 10 years, you would have lost money, which is a surprise to many people because they still remember the lower interest rates we had for quite a while. But let me just throw in a spanner here a little bit, uh, Rich, something that we should ponder. And that is we currently always refer to, well, maybe we should replace the 40, but given what someone like Niall Ferguson talks about and the future he sees, um, which is not very bright and, and other people uh, are the same, um, given the fact that we have seen in the 60s and the 70s that even equities had a very long period of time with no returns, we know, and I'm not predicting this, but we know people are worried that we are heading into the perfect storm for equities as well. Um, which could lead to, I mean, it's only 22 years ago, we had an 87% drop in the NASDAQ, right? So things can go wrong. So maybe at some point, we also need to say, well, how do we replace the 60 in the 60-40 portfolio? I don't have an answer for that right now. Uh, even though Jerry and I, of course, touched on the fact that trend following probably is the perfect portfolio, at least in our view. And um, but, actually, uh, while while you're on that topic, I, I just thought I'd I'd like to add this in that um, uh, we, we're about to produce uh, you and me um, for uh, the next monthly report of the yes. trend following series. So that's hopefully going to be coming out next week. Now we're adding a little feature segment of that report uh, where mm -hmm. we're looking at um, is there a way to compile a blend of trend following programs to produce um, optimal portfolio performance and and what what we find is that there is enough difference in our trend following world uh, that we can find 100% trend following solutions within um, the the Top Traders Unplugged Trend Following Index, a TTU-TF index, there is enough in that 60 um, uh, trend followers within there and enough diversification, enough difference in there to actually create these very powerful blends that I'm finding do 
produce far more consistent um, um, equity curves, uh, which which don't necessarily carry all the features of these protracted drawdowns simply by the way we compile our blends. So um, the good thing about this is we've got a little solution um, in this next monthly report, which we use, where we, we don't use any um, hindsight bias in our selection process, but we're using a process of, of selecting each year over a 22-year period, the optimal combination based on their how they perform as a risk-adjusted composite over the prior 15 to 20 years of history to select them for the optimal candidates each year going forward. Now, what I'm finding is that that blend produces these incredible um, blended uh, results at the portfolio level, which is um, it's decorrelating the correlations we talk about in trend following, if you know what I mean, and producing quite exceptional returns. So it's something definitely to have a look at because it's a very interesting piece. Yeah, no, absolutely. Um, can't wait um, for uh, us being able to publish that on the uh, TTU website in uh, in the near uh, future. Okay, so we have two points left, uh, but actually, since we've already been gone, uh, going for about an hour and five minutes, I wonder whether we should just keep them for next time um, because we do want to have time enough to um, to dive into them with a bit, little bit of detail here. We want to talk about kind of what really matters when we look at uh, data. Um, and that's actually maybe surprising to some people uh, what it is that really matters. And we also want to have a chance to dive into the many different forms um, that a trend can take. And I think those um, two points deserves um, enough time. So let's just round um, the conversation off for today. Um, which, of course, we hope uh, everyone has uh, enjoyed the insights that Rich shared today. Um, and um, and also, of course, if you want to support the show, feel free to go to Spotify and iTunes and leave a rating and review. Now, um, next week, Rob is back from his extended summer holiday, I might add. Um, so this will be a chance for him to tackle a few questions that has already come in, but um, we can load on a few more if you have. Um, so uh, feel free to email them to info at toptradersonplot.com and I'll do my best to get uh, Rob's insights um, to this. From Rich and me, thanks ever so much for listening. We look forward to being back with you next week and until next time, take care of yourself and take care of each other. Thanks for listening to the Systematic Investor Podcast Series. If you enjoy this series, go on over to iTunes and leave an honest rating and review. And be sure to listen to all the other episodes from Top Traders Unplugged. If you have questions about systematic investing, send us an email with the word question in the subject line to info at toptradersunplugged.com and we'll try to get it on the show. And remember, all the discussion that we have about investment performance is about the past, and past performance does not guarantee or even infer anything about future performance. Also understand that there's a significant risk of financial loss with all investment strategies, and you need to request and understand the specific risks from the investment manager about their products before you make investment decisions. Thanks for spending some of your valuable time with us, and we'll see you on the next episode of The Systematic Investor.